If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Dr. Squatch. When your personal care routine needs a refresh, Dr. Squatch is here to help. They have high-performing natural products with no harmful ingredients that'll have you looking and smelling your best. Like the Bay Rum Soap and Deodorant. It smells delightfully spicy. And right now, they have an amazing offer for new customers. Get 20% off your first purchase of any amount or a subscription order by going to drsquatch.com slash Spotify or use the code Spotify at checkout. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. As I'm sure you already know, this podcast is produced by the team behind BBC History Magazine. And we're pleased to bring you a very special offer. Subscribe to BBC History Magazine today and you can choose a book worth up to £30. Choose from either Queens of the Crusades by Alison Weir, The Children of Ashen Elm by Neil Price, Agent Sonia by Ben McIntyre or The Story of China by Michael Wood. Not only that, you'll also get every issue of BBC History Magazine delivered direct to your door, all from just £22.45. To take advantage of this fantastic offer, visit our official online store at buysubscriptions.com forward slash history book. This promotion is only available for UK residents and while stocks last. You'll receive your book within 28 days of ordering. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Today's podcast guest is Professor Sujit Sivasundaram, who I spoke to about his book, Waves Across the South, A New History of Revolution and Empire. The book offers a new perspective on the expansion of the British Empire across the Indian and Pacific Oceans, arguing that we need to place more emphasis on oceanic communities when thinking about empire and putting Indigenous voices front and centre. Your new book offers a new perspective on the expansion of British imperialism across the Indian and Pacific Oceans. To start us off, how has this subject traditionally been written about and why do you think And how do you think that needs correcting? Traditionally, the history of the British Empire is written as a galloping kind of story, especially for a public audience. Um, And it's the story of how the British Empire expands across the globe as perceived and seen from London, the nerve centre of the British Empire. 
Traditionally, the later 19th century and the early 20th century figures very heavily uh, in such accounts uh, of the British Empire, the so-called period uh, of high imperialism or new imperialism, uh, even, uh, which witnessed uh, the partition uh, of Africa. Um, and uh, in terms of territorial extent, the greatest extent uh, of European imperialism uh, across the globe. Um, so traditionally, that would be uh, that would be the period that figures uh, most prominently uh, in, in history textbooks. Traditionally, I guess, uh, the story is continental um, as well. So if one wants to think uh, about the 19th century British Empire, India, mainland India, continental India, uh, and the Raj figures very heavily uh, in public uh, memory, as does uh, the, the partitioning of Africa, as I just mentioned, and settler colonialism uh, more broadly uh, in the late 19th uh, and early 20th century as well. But why do you think that we need to take a different look at this? Yes, so the book that uh, I've just written, Waves Across the South, is written from, quite literally from, uh, the Indian uh, and Pacific Oceans. So it's um, a way of detaching ourselves from this metropolitan view out uh, of London. Um, and arguably, this metropolitan view out of London has generated a marginalisation of perspectives, of histories, of narratives, from the islands uh, of the Indian and Pacific Oceans uh, in particular, which are small territories. Uh, so that's one reason why uh, we need a, a new perspective. A second reason is that we need a, a perspective which is environmentally inflected. Um, so this is an oceanic history. It's not uh, as much a continental account of the expansion of the British Empire. And I think because of the way world history moved uh, in the 20th century, uh, retrospectively, we've always imagined empire as sort of land-based, and we just need to kind of think uh, about these oceanic spaces uh, much more uh, fundamentally. So if we take a look at that oceanic perspective, as you put it, and focus on what you call maritime frontiers, how does that give us a different view of what was happening um, in this area of the world at, the t at this time? The phrase maritime frontier in the book uh, is partly about warfare. So this period was one of extensive warfare over water, and we sometimes forget that because of our concern with land-based frontiers and land-based wars. So in the book, I track uh, the connections between warfare in Sri Lanka against the Kandyan Kingdom, warfare uh, in uh, Burma against the Kingdom of Ava, uh, and also in Java, uh, as um, just a lineage which provides a sort of example, really, of this maritime conflict and the connections um, people moving back and forth, fighters moving back and forth, cultural artifacts moving back and forth, and so on, across the Bay of Bengal, linking Burma, Sri Lanka, uh, and Java uh, in this period. And it's a story that has been totally forgotten. Um, so I think it provides a narrative uh, which uh, is distinct, but it also allows these uh, territories and peoples whose histories have been marginalised uh, to come to the front. One could also argue that race and gender is a really critical component of the argument, because I argue that this is a period where intensive comparisons of different people groups, uh, different genders, different cultures, is proceeding uh, globally. And um, one could say that maritime contexts are, are really crucial for that colonial project, because what you get is communities who colonial forces will say are isolated. You know, there's an island here, then there's an island there, and then there's an island there. And so you can compare and contrast, and you can create a theory of race and gender. And that 
doesn't remember that these communities have very long-standing connections between them. They're not isolated in any way. So one gets the sort of maritime frontier generating a, a notion uh, of race uh, and gender. Critically for the book, the maritime frontier is also a politically significant one because the book is arguing that this is a period that gave rise to our idea of rights um, and our um, order of politics. Um, and there too, these small spaces and islands can be a way of uh, launching a republican experiment or launching a colonial state or launching a heavily militarized uh, regime. And so people are using these spaces as laboratories, laboratories uh, for politics too. So by way of war, by way of identity, race and gender, by way of politics, just to give three examples, this maritime frontier uh, is really significant uh, in this period. I want to pick up on the final point you made there about politics, because this is often hailed as the, quote, age of revolution. And you offer a new perspective saying that we need to see the empire as a story of revolution and counter-revolution. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, thank you. Well, that really gets to the heart uh, of waves across the South. Um, so the Age of Revolution story, and I was really struck by this in starting the work for this project, is dominated uh, by the Euro-Atlantic. So usually the story is that there are these links between the American Revolution, the French Revolution, the Haitian Revolution, Latin American independence movements, which constitute uh, the Age of Revolutions. One could bring in the Industrial Revolution, one can bring in uh, the revolutions of 1848 uh, into this story as well. But even if one did that, it's predominantly a, a Euro-Atlantic story. So what the book does is that it, for the first time, really incredibly, given that so much has been written on the age of revolutions, it takes the story to the Indian uh, and Pacific Oceans. And it argues that here too, there was an age of revolutions, and it defines the age of revolutions firstly as indigenous assertion. So it's about indigenous peoples, it's about islanders, it's about non-European peoples experimenting with politics, with identity, with connection across the sea, with trade and so forth. And into that space, there comes a really firm imperialism which is a counter-revolution. So indigenous assertion as revolutionary uprising overtaken by this counter-revolutionary imperialism. And that package, that dynamic, which isn't um, a full story because, you know, the indigenous peoples can come back, uh, they can rework their politics, they can rework their public consciousness in the light of uh, British imperialism, for instance. So it's not just that one gives way to the other, it's a bit of a dance, really, between alternatives. But that dynamic uh, is what defines uh, the age of revolutions uh, in the Indian and Pacific Oceans. In the book, there are almost too many examples to choose from, and they're very varied. So we go from, you know, the Persian Gulf down to the Tasman Sea. But I wonder if you could just pick out a couple of examples of how that push and pull of revolution and counter-revolution as you see it played out. Yeah, so one of the places which I really fell in love with in writing this book uh, is the island of Mauritius, where I spent quite a bit of time. And um, what happens in Mauritius is really interesting because the news of the French Revolution arise, uh, arrives uh, and immediately assemblies are set up, protest unfolds, Republican sentiment spreads. And at the same time, Mauritius becomes this beacon for a whole series of delegations from across uh, the Indian Ocean 
from other people who want to create um, anti-colonial kind of protest, arguably. Uh, a delegation from Burma, a delegation from um, the Patriots at the frontier in the Cape Colony, and importantly for me, a, a delegation also from the well-known South Indian ruler who was demonized as an Oriental despot, um, Tipu Sultan of Mysore. And this is not a story that has been tracked before. So Tipu Sultan of Mysore sends this embassy across to Mauritius, um, and they try to sort of gather forces for Tipu in South India, right across the Indian Ocean, uh, to fight uh, against uh, the British. Now, the British get hold of this story, and more generally, as they vilify Tipu Sultan of Mysore as an Oriental despot, uh, the information of his connections is really helpful in demonizing him further, and eventually uh, his kingdom falls uh, to the British. So what one sees there really is a long-standing or a long-distance Indian Ocean kind of story being overtaken uh, by uh, the British uh, and British warfare uh, in turn and looting to uh, and Tipu himself uh, being killed. And so that's a really good example of an unexpected story, but one that uh, highlights how revolution uh, and counter-revolutionary imperialism works. But as you say, the idea of the book was really to kind of track across the, the vast expanse of uh, the Indian and Pacific Oceans and to bring a diversity of perspectives from across these seas, which haven't been cast together before, whilst illustrating the unexpected connections across uh, these various bits of the Indian and Pacific Oceans. That actually leads me on to my next question, which is when you're covering such a diverse range of communities and peoples as you do here, how do you find connections between them enough to, you know, group them together into one book? And what kind of connections did you uncover? Um, and so what the book does is that it's organised according to these smaller seas, as I call them, the Persian Gulf, the Bay of Bengal, the Tasman Sea, uh, the South Pacific, uh, the Southwest Indian Ocean, which is where the Mauritius story fits. Um, and what I wanted to do was not to override the particularities in each of these locales, because each of them is different with respect to indigenous culture, with respect to imperialism, with respect to geography, uh, and so forth. Um, so in the Southwest Indian Ocean, just to stick with that, since I mentioned Mauritius, uh, next door in the Cape Colony, there's slave revolt, there's Trekpoor um, uprising, um, there's a whole series of different kinds of movements, Islamic ideas circulating as well among slaves. So that's quite a particular story, which is different, say, to the Persian Gulf or the story of Aboriginal Australians uh, or Maori. However, I did, didn't want to kind of totally kind of separate out uh, these various seas. And so the idea is that, uh, is that as the book proceeds, the connections become more apparent. Putting these stories together side by side, I think, is also really important today because it's about creating forms of solidarity, really, uh, in the global south um, as we think about um, how to come to terms with imperialism yet again. Uh, in public debate, and also as we come to terms with environmental change, uh, which is another theme uh, of the book too, actually. Um, I'll probably pick up on that point about environmental change a little bit later, but um, a kind of recurrent criticism of many traditional histories of the British Empire are that Indigenous voices are lacking, and 
people often say, oh, well, you know, there's not as many written sources, so it's a lot harder to reconstruct that. But is that the case? Or what sources can you build on to reconstruct those Indigenous voices and put them front and centre? Yes. So, well, that's a line I hear often and I've been kind of contending with right through my career and my teaching career as well, where people say, well, there are not not any sources uh, to bring in. But to be honest with you, there there are huge numbers uh, of sources. Um, The challenge is a linguistic one. um, And the challenge also is to do with expertise, because very few historians uh, are brave enough uh, to venture beyond their small patch, um, if they work on Malay sources, or they work on Aboriginal sources, or they work on Maori sources, uh, and so on. And so the story is really divided up um, between experts. However, I think it's important to get around this idea that there are no voices uh, to be recovered, and also to get around the idea that this uh, the voices should only be kind of uh, presented uh, by certain experts, because if we follow those two tracks, we can't kind of put together this story in a way um, that is, uh, you know, that reveals the connections um, and that reveals uh, the way the story resonates uh, in our present political moment. So just thinking practically, uh, there are a lot of visual sources in the book, and these were useful in terms uh, of recovering Indigenous perspectives. For instance, um, in the section on New South Wales, where Aboriginal presence uh, and activity is really significant, I did use images quite quite a lot to think through modes of clothing, uh, to think through gender, uh, to think about where, the way in which Aboriginal peoples uh, engage with water, uh, especially uh, off Tans- Tasmania, uh, which is part of uh, that chapter. Uh, and so visual sources can provide clues. Um, but also, I think uh, it's important to kind of read against the grain uh, of colonial sources, um, to think about their biases, to acknowledge their biases, and then to kind of deconstruct them effectively or to open them up uh, to other kinds uh, of perspectives. And then, of course, there are plenty of sources uh, in other languages, and I did my best uh, here to use the work of others and to use my own uh, uh, skills as well uh, to integrate such sources uh, into this book so that it's not simply colonial sources uh, that can't. More broadly, uh, in my uh, in my work, what I try to do is to juxtapose colonial sources and indigenous sources so that these destabilize one another, really, because I think that even the indigenous sources can have biases, they can be written by elites. So I think we need a diversity of sources set against each other, rather than simply a reliance uh, on particular voices, uh, which are colonial. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. And so storms and squalls and hurricanes and water spouts and ships tossed into the air and ships that run aground and run aground in coral reefs and so on feature in the book. And the reason I mention all of that is because, you know, the environment matters. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 
Need to hire? You need indeed. So if we take these indigenous sources and, as you say, juxtapose them with the colonial sources, what kind of a picture does that present of the interactions that were taking place between imperialists and indigenous people in this era? Sure, there's a lot of exchange, and that's one of the, the points of the book. Uh, and I use the idea of raiding, uh, actually, um, quite literally ships being raided uh, by indigenous peoples for stuff uh, and also for ideas as a way of talking about this. A whole series of ideas, Republican ideas, royalist ideas uh, are circulating, um, and these can be useful for indigenous peoples. So to give one particular example. Uh, one of the arguments in the book concerns monarchy in the Pacific, where I showed that new monarchic lines are inaugurated in the Pacific in the age of revolutions, and that this is not a surprise in some ways, because it's part of the age of revolution story. And so what you get is, you know, Pacific explorers, certainly Captain Cook, but lots of other explorers, French explorers, who I discuss in the book, who haven't arguably been considered as much in the English language literature, they come along and they say, you know, where's the king? Where's the queen? And of course, this is not a place where one has a European sense of royalty. And then indigenous peoples will take those ideas and use them to create their own monarchic lines for their own purposes. And so that's one example of ideas arriving and being taken from ships. I think that's interesting because so often we assume that these would be, when we think about, say, globalisation, these would be ideas imposed by imperialists, but you're saying that they were actively taken by indigenous peoples. Uh, yeah, so what I'm saying is that there are certainly traditions which already exist uh, in that example of chieftaincy, which are reformulated in line with the arrival of these new ideas connected with monarchy. So there's dramatic change uh, in this period. Um, once you have a monarchic line initiated, um, that becomes quite useful for colonialism as well, because you have a representative uh, with, which, with whom you can bargain, uh, with whom you can sign a treaty. Um, and so, again, it's that dance of alternatives of revolution and imperialism, which I mentioned earlier. Uh, there's give and take uh, on all sides, and there certainly is imposition as well uh, as exchange uh, in the story. That does highlight an interesting point in the book that the expansion of empire was not just simply a military thing. Can you give some more examples of uh, the other forms that it took? Yeah, so I don't want to minimise the military aspect of it because I think it was violent. Um, but that's a story that we know already. I wanted to emphasise the looting and the cultural life, really, of warfare, the number of Buddha statues uh, which were taken uh, in Burma, um, and uh, the amount of botanical specimens that were collected uh, in the midst of war um, as well. So I think when we think about warfare, we've got to think about culture uh, and cultural looting um, and indigenous peoples also taking cultural artifacts for their own purposes, weapons uh, in the Pacific um, being used like this figure in the book. So warfare leads into culture, leads into objects. Um, and another very important theme for the book uh, is knowledge and science uh, in particular. Uh, and here one can think of a whole series of experiments about you know, astronomical experiments, botanical, collecting enterprises, uh, and so on, which really thrive in this age of revolutions, because it's an age where understanding is seen to be expanding, colonial understanding. And indigenous peoples in turn are kind of quite curious about this and are co-opted as helpers, as assistants, 
for language study, for collecting specimens, for observing the stars, uh, and so on. And so that too is a space where one sees this exchange, which is tied to militarism because it's about surveillance, it's about information that's useful for war too. Um, but you know, it's not just military military in a narrow sense. So when you dig into it, it's actually a very complicated picture, a web almost, isn't it, of different um, motivations and different interactions. Must be quite hard to unpick that. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think imperialism is complicated, but I I mean, that doesn't deny that it's violent um, and that it's powerful. And that's partly why I use the language of counter-revolution, because it suppresses the possibilities of this period. So if we think about revolution, as I define it here, as indigenous assertion, it's about the hopes, the expectations, the possibilities for the future um, that seafaring peoples in the Indian and Pacific Oceans had, and empire is suppressing that. So we need to not lose sight of that headline. But when we dig beneath that, the way it does that is very, very clever because it actually kind of relies on indigenous expertise. It relies on indigenous assistance. um, And it actually sort of covers not just brute militarism, but culture, knowledge, um, and so on um, as well, um, and trade. Mm-hmm. Just to circle back around to something you mentioned earlier um, about the importance you wanted to place on environment um, and environmentalism, how do you think that the progress of the British Empire was shaped by geography and the natural environment? Yeah, so the book is an oceanic history, and so storms and squalls and hurricanes and water spouts and ships tossed into the air and ships that run aground and run aground in coral reefs and so on feature in the book and the reason i mention all of that is because you know the environment matters it's not just simply the case that you have you know either indigenous assertion or imperial counter revolt operating on a blank slate uh, this is a watery terrain which is difficult to navigate in this period so we need to kind of keep that uh, in mind uh, and the way it relates to the argument uh, about the age of revolutions is that indigenous peoples have arguably a, a pretty advanced sense of the terrain um, and they have contemplated the sea for their sense of self for their narratives of history uh, and so on and so when empire comes along the british empire the french empire and the dutch empire too they need to contend Uh, with that environmental knowledge uh, that already exists. And so one of the things which I found really interesting to track is that as we go through the age of revolutions into the 1830s, into the 1840s, you get whalers transforming themselves into harbour masters, transforming themselves into hotel owners, transforming themselves into people who keep cattle. And so what you get is the transition of that whole maritime complex uh, which was uh, mobile, um, you know, um, which sometimes was, you didn't quite know what was going to happen next, as I was saying, into something which is much more settled, settled use in many senses here, settled isn't just fixed, but also on land. And, you know, um, and so one gives way uh, to the other too. And that once again is an environmental dimension to the argument, which is in keeping with what a counter-revolution is. It moves across the sea and then it just sort of, you know, it was plonk on plan, and you get these huge port cities uh, like Singapore, um, which is in the book, uh, emerging as um, mega cities of free trade uh, in the terms of the period. So you mentioned earlier that another aspect of this age was this desire almost to classify people um, and compare them. 
most significantly along the lines of race and gender. How did that play out in this context? Um, yeah, so there's a lot of racism. Um, and I was struck by this reading the book in print once again, actually. There's so much racism in the sources, in the words used, in the terms of description used. And the book actually ends um, with an account of how history itself was born uh, out of this story, uh, meaning that people started to write the history of the British Empire. Um uh, at the end of the Age of Revolutions. There's a guy, Robert Montgomery Martin, who features at the end of the book, who astonishingly, and I kind of, I'm quite scared uh, thinking about it, published 267 books on the British Empire. Now, better get a move on. Uh, better get, I'm not, I'm not going to compete. I don't want to compete, actually. <laughs> for, um, but there's an important reason why I don't want to compete, which is basically he went travelling across many of the places that the book is about. He also worked in Hong Kong. And then he sort of just, stationed himself in London and had access to all the statistical returns from the colonies. But he collected skeletons, indigenous people, skeletons and remains. Uh, And so the origins of British imperial history comes out of this sort of racism and one needs to contend with it. And so if one then kind of moves back, one has to kind of peel back all of that printing, all the 267 books effectively have been taken back. And then all the novels that were written, some by people who feature in the book as historical figures, uh, a guy called Marriott, who was in the war in Burma, and publishes novels um, based on uh, the Pacific. Um, One has to take back all of that print um, and realize that actually at the core of it was the collection of indigenous cultures and sometimes extremely disturbingly indigenous remains um, as well. Uh, And so that's why race and gender have to be really at the heart uh, of uh, the story. Now, one place where uh, the argument uh, is developed is in New South Wales, as I mentioned earlier. And here, what was striking was just the racial depiction uh, of Indigenous peoples and the classification of these peoples, um, on the one hand, uh, with regard to their attitudes to water. You know, were they so-called nomadic peoples? Were they, how, how did they assist explorers? Um, in in indigenous peoples in Tasmania, how did they commune with seals? Because this is a period where the sealing trade uh, is expanding. Um, So um, these sorts of questions, which are environmental questions, um, but also ethnological uh, and anthropological questions, become about classifying peoples. You know, how are the Tasmanians different to the Maori? How are the Maori different to mainland Australian Aboriginal peoples? And then you depict these peoples uh, in print and so on. So that's what's going on in the period. And then it leads into the Robert Montgomery Martin kind of story, which I just told you, which is the origins of the history, the historical writing of the British Empire. Something that I was surprised to read about, which ties into the point of the Age of Revolutions and how it played out in in this area, was about the impact of abolition in the across the Pacific and Indian Oceans, because I think that two areas of history that many people wouldn't connect in their minds. Um, How did you find that it played out in the Indian and Pacific Oceans? The argument is that debates about abolition and emancipation in particular feed growing public spheres in the Indian and Pacific Ocean port cities. Um, And here, Cape Town and Mauritius uh, feature prominently uh, in the account. Um, 
So, yes, I mean, people think about the Atlantic Ocean when they think about enslavement. Uh, and that's right, uh, because it's the critical ocean uh, with which to think uh, in considering histories of slavery. But they don't remember then that there is a history of coarse labor in the Indian Ocean and the Pacific Ocean as well. Uh, first, uh, to feed uh, plantation colonies. Uh, then, after the abolition of slavery and emancipation, using indentured Indian laborers across the Indian and Pacific Oceans too. So I wanted to bring that story in uh, to uh, this book because arguably it's an age of revolution story. Abolition, uh, allegedly the kind of change of the status of enslaved labor is part and parcel of what the age of revolutions is in the Atlantic. And if so, it should be in the Indian uh, and Pacific Oceans uh, as well. You were able to, of course, travel to some spectacular places um, while writing this book across the Indian and Pacific Oceans. How is the history of empire remembered today in those parts of the world in ways that might be different from if a lot of our listeners are from Britain and America, the ways that perhaps we would be taught about it or remember it? Yeah, I mean, I was really, really privileged to travel in these places, talk to local scholars and to work uh, in local archives. And the stories that they told actually fed in uh, to the book. And so that's just a basic uh, answer to your question, because actually there are lots of stories which one one gets from talking to local scholars, which are just absolutely unknown uh, in Britain. For instance, stories uh, about slavery and uh, in Mauritius, um, for instance, um, or stories, uh, you know, uh, or one witnesses the memorials to war. Uh, one um, looks at the sources which are available in archives in these locations, which are totally different, much more uh, granular uh, than the sources that you can get, say, in a place like the British Library, which has high level uh, colonial sources. So practically, just in terms of the stories and the sources, uh, you get something quite different. But certainly the narratives are remembered differently as well. It's so just one example um, from the Pacific uh, was a story about William Mariner, uh, which features uh, in one of the chapters. He He's a young man. He arrives as a shipwreck. He's st stranded in Tonga. His ship is raided. Um, various things are taken off it, armament, weapons. He himself, Mariner, becomes an advisor to local Tongans in wars that they undertake prior to the and into the consolidation of a monarchic line uh, in Tonga. Now, the story, as told in colonial sources, is that there's a massacre. Lots of the people on the ship were killed by Tongans. But the story, as told in Tonga, is that actually these people on the ship, which was a private ship, were out raiding. They were kind of killing huge numbers of whales, and they were kind of, you know, looting islands. And so what you get there is, you know, the contrast. Uh, we remember the, the massacre of... Um, uh, on a European ship, but we don't remember then uh, the violence that that ship is involved in in turn. And so it's that kind of change of perspective that's necessary. But also the, the two stories need to be told side by side. So when I tell the story of William Mariner, I actually end uh, that section by mentioning how Tongan scholars and people remember the story and how it's a different perspective. Um, and so it's keeping in view these multiple perspectives, I think, uh, which is significant. Um, so how would you want us to amend our view of the British Empire? Well, I think fundamentally I want to say that there is, there are multiplicity of histories of the British Empire. This is not the only history of the British Empire 
uh, in this period. But I think it's a significant history because it's one that's been marginalized and hasn't been told. All of the places, many of the places that I kind of bring into the book have not featured very heavily uh, in histories of the British Empire. Uh, and certainly this period of the history of the British Empire, the late 18th and early 19th century in the East is also arguably less well served than the later period, uh, as I said earlier. But to return to the main point, I think we need a multiplicity of histories because we have got used to this galloping universal history out of London, and that is no longer fit for purpose in our times, um, because we need to engage with a whole series of populations uh, in the wider world, uh, as well as uh, in Britain itself, and they require a whole range of different histories uh, to be told. That was Sujit Sivasundaram. Waves Across the South, A New History of Revolution and Empire, is on sale now, published by HarperCollins. Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Tune in tomorrow to hear Simon Hall discussing his book about Fidel Castro in Harlem. Hold up. 